people want to feel great before they start anything. The confidence part will come over time. Confidence needs evidence. That's how you feed it. Take some pressure off yourself and just get started. Changing your mindset can make such an impact. I'm doing this to raise the bar on what women think is possible. The big challenge of it is just knowing that you're going to suffer and seeing how you're going to do in the suffering. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Happy holidays and so much love from me and my team here at the studio. As this year comes to a close, comes to a conclusion, I thought it would be beautiful, appropriate, and cool to take a little bit of time to appreciate the unbelievable library of conversations that we've recorded over the last 12 months. When you look back in the rear view at 2022, it's pretty clear that it was chock full of just amazing, powerful, life-altering exchanges on everything from spirituality to health, fitness, psychology, aging, and even magic. And so to celebrate all of these amazing episodes, we here today are going to indulge in an annual tradition that we conduct on this podcast, ending each year with a two-part compilation on the finest excerpts from the previous 12 months of the show. In other words, Welcome to the annual Best of the RRP Anthology, which is our way of taking a moment to reflect on the year, to express gratitude and give thanks for taking this journey with us. We're gonna kick things off with Dr. Andrew Huberman, but first. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentous's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentous for yourself by going to livemomentous.com richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes, it is without a doubt, technology. 
technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, for our devoted podcast fans, I want you to think of these next two episodes as kind of a refresher course in all things wellness. And for those newer to the show, perhaps think of these episodes as kind of like a buffet of bite-sized knowledge and wisdom teasers that will hopefully entice you to go back into the catalog and dial up episodes you may have missed or skipped. And so I'm excited to share these premiere clips with you, starting with the good Dr. Andrew Huberman. 
Andrew Huberman is host of the phenomenal Huberman Lab podcast. He is the Stanford neuroscience overlord. And on this episode, he answered some key questions, questions like how does behavior affect your biology? And can behavioral tools be more powerful than pharmaceuticals in changing your state and focus? So here's a small glimpse into that conversation. Your actions do, in some sense, define you both to other to people outside of you and and to oneself. Mm. Uh, there's this concept in uh, psychoanalysis of the introject, which I find fascinating. The introject is this idea that we can subconsciously embody the reactions of somebody else. So, um, you know, one thing that fascinates me now that I'm a bit more involved in, you know, sort of online interactions and social media is you know, the tremendous number of really inspiring uh, people out there. I put you in this category. I'll put you on the spot and embarrass you. But I read your book long before we met and was really motivated to make a number of important changes in my life on the basis of of reading that book. It truly was. And, and so just to, you know, embarrass you a bit here, but yeah. that's that's the reality. Now I'm, I'm going to get flush. Yeah. <laughs> Appropriately, yeah. Because uh, it an, it's an incredible journey. And, or, um, you know, last time we talked about David Goggins and there are many examples, right? You can go online now and, and see examples of incredible people doing incredible things. Now, one version of that is to think, oh, well, that's inspiring. It Changes, shifts my autonomic arousal so I can get up at 4.30 in the morning like Jocko and like get after it mm-hmm. and do this stuff. Which And frankly, there've been times when I'll see a social media post and I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm being lazy. I should really push a little harder. Um, uh, you had Chad Wright on here. Right. Whose content, I, you know, he and I um, are very different in, in a variety of ways and we've never yeah. met. But I find his content in, incredibly inspiring because the, the way that he communicates his conviction, even though some of my convictions are different than his. And so, um, and I learned about him through through you. So we could consider that inspiration, but then the idea of the analyst that I think is appropriate, and keep in mind that, that while Freud, there were many issues with him and Jung and analysis, they did have a, a heavy um, interest in physiology as the root of the subconscious. And there's this idea of the introject is fascinating to me because what it says is that if you consume enough of that content, if you read enough books about people who have embarked on certain kinds of journeys and made certain choices, that at some point you might introject some of their personality and their responses and subconsciously start making decisions, hopefully positive decisions on your own behalf, maybe having more appropriate boundaries, maybe taking better self-care or care of other people. And that without even realizing it, you're starting to make better choices on your own behalf. And then at some point you move from the introject to a recognition that, wait, it was me that made that change. Mm -hmm. I'm the one that managed to get up a bit earlier and do a little bit more or to be kinder in this context or to listen a little bit better in this context. And over time, we start to ascribe those changes to ourselves. So this is a more gradual shift in personality and this story of, of who one is. But I think it's a powerful one. And I like it because, you know, we hear so much today about the negativity that's out there and how to navigate the, the just onslaught of negative news and negative interactions online. And for that reason, I really make an effort to really focus on the kind of the the bright shining uh, lights out there, because I do think that the information that we consume sets the the internal context of our subconscious and sets the internal context for what we decide to do consciously. And in many ways, it's sort of like garbage in, garbage out. And if it's, you know, positive stories and inspiration in, that's how you're basically going to react in the world. Mm-hmm. So I think that the nervous system has a tremendous capacity to learn consciously and subconsciously. And 
After all, it is during sleep that our nervous system rewires. It, you know, we know that the dreaming that occurs during rapid eye movement sleep has this very unique signature of being very emotionally salient, you know, falling, being chased, et cetera, but that the body is incapable of releasing adrenaline, epinephrine during that time. So that's its own sort of form of trauma therapy, right? So that's a subconscious learning that we go through each night provided we're getting into rapid eye movement sleep. So the brain is, is designed to access these states in sleep that help us rewire in beneficial ways. You can, if you want, I don't recommend it, you can run the other experiment, sleep deprive yourself for three nights and see how your emotionality yeah. is doing, right? Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, I think ultimately though, it always goes back to action. Like you can consume a tremendous amount of inspirational content and then convince yourself that you did something productive or you feel better about yourself without having ever actually done anything. And I, you know, I, I see a lot of that as well, but ultimately at some point you would think that that's gonna translate into some kind of action or behavior. One would hope. And, and that brings up kind of these ideas around alter ego, right? Like if you feel yourself not worthy of you know, being that type of person, you see Jocko, he's waking up at 4.30 in the morning and doing what he does. And you say, well, what would Jocko do? And then you do that, like you kind of step into the alter ego of Jocko and what he would do and start mimicking that behavior over time. Then, like you said, you wake up and you realize like, oh, it's me. I no longer, I can shed that alter ego now and I can kind of own this space for myself. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that, you know, one of the hardest things to do is to calibrate one's consumption of social media or any kind of uh, high potency information. I mean, if you think about it, this is the first time in human history that you can scroll through 50 movies in one minute. Right. right? I mean, you know, if a picture is worth a thousand words, right? We yeah. know that a movie is worth 10,000 pictures. I mean, the visual system loves motion. And so there's, you know, I'm sure the algorithms reflect this. And so really setting constraints on the amount of interaction with stuff is important. And I think setting constraints on what type of information you're going to consume. I mean, there is something about our nervous system that draws us to look at the car crash, to you know click behind that uh, muted screen that allows you to see the gory thing or to get involved in some sort of a very narrow context online argument. I mean, everyone is prone to that, some people more than others, but you know, there's also a, a lot of incredible content out there. And I think that the high potency positive content, whatever that means, you know, for some people mm -hmm. that's listening to a piece of classical music. These days I'm really interested in, in finding a lot of incredible artwork online and just going, wow, like the, people are creating some amazing yeah. stuff. You know, that can be inspiring. So it, it comes in a variety of different forms for different people. But I think that we all need to be more guarded of the kinds of information in the context that we expose our nervous systems to. And the problem with social media, to just acknowledge it, is that it's a free-for-all in terms of context. And you can set limits on it in time, but you can't set limits on it in terms of context at all, unless you're very good at self-governing. Confidence isn't the start of something, it's the result of something. So how do you foster it? What behaviors and thought processes cultivate conviction? And what does it take to beat imposter syndrome? I'm asking for a friend. Best-selling author of Radical Confidence and co-founder of Quest Nutrition, Lisa Bilyeu, dropped by the pod to answer these questions and more. Here's a powerful clip from that conversation. Confidence to me was like how you feel about yourself. 
So people want to feel great before they start anything. I was the same. I was like, oh, I'm going to start my YouTube channel once I have the confidence. And so what ends up happening is people don't actually take action because they're waiting for the confidence to come. And I joke about it in the book, but it's like, you know, if you want to glutes are still, you won't go to the gym do a couple of reps and think that you're all done, right? It's mm -hmm. kind of like with confidence. It's like you have to keep practicing. It takes it's an reps. action. Exactly. And so the very first part that I say is, okay, identify what you want confidence in. To do what with the confidence? Because we're all focusing on feeling good, but actually, what do you want to achieve? Usually people will say, I want confidence to um, tell my boss that I want a pay rise. I want the confidence to tell my partner in my relationship I'm not happy. I want the confidence to tell my parents I no longer want to study biochemistry and I want to be a stand-up comedian. So it's usually something to do something with. And I'm like, great, now you know the end goal. Now you've identified the end goal. Now you need to come up with a set of tools, stepping stones to get to that goal because the confidence part will come over time. It will come with action. It will come with repetition. It will come with gaining competence. The confidence is the byproduct. And so if we can stop focusing on the confidence and have radical confidence, which to me means you have insecurities, you have doubts in yourself, you actually probably are not equipped for what you're about to do. Mm-hmm but you still show up and do it anyway. Now, I don't mean blindly believing in yourself. I don't mean blindly saying, ah, forget the fear and do it anyway. No, no, no. When you've got the fear, you need to me. I needed stepping stones that were binary. Okay, I wake up today. Did I do this? Yes or no? So some people, for instance, let's take the gym, working out fitness. I know my mom didn't have the confidence to even walk in the gym. Okay. She wanted to lose weight. She wanted to be healthy, but she didn't have the confidence. She didn't believe in herself. She didn't think she was worthy enough. So now you have someone that in her 70s still says losing weight wasn't possible because she was waiting for the confidence to then feel good about herself to just go in the gym. And it became this like, you know, vicious cycle. Yeah. So instead of just saying, okay, we'll just go to the gym, feel the fear and do it anyway, come up with the steps, stepping process. So you want confidence to feel good about yourself to go to the gym. Okay, the end goal is the gym. Now, what do you do? Make it binary. Tomorrow, I put my shoes by my bed. That's it. Did you do it? Yes or no? And now you create this plan, this action plan around the thing that you're trying to do so that every day you don't allow your negative mindset, the voice in your head that's saying you're not worthy, you're not good enough. You don't let it take over. You don't want it to go into autopilot. And that's what I was doing for eight years. My entire life was autopilot because every time I wanted to do something, that mindset was coming in saying, well, you don't have the confidence. You're not good enough. Who do you think you are? And at Quest, because we were growing so quickly, we grew at 57,000%. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have the luxury to A, slow down. I didn't have the luxury because our house was on the line. I didn't have the luxury to just stop and say, I don't know how. And I don't have the confidence to do that. So when I found myself walking into a boardroom where let's say there's 10 guys with way more business experience than me, the insecurity comes flooding, right? That I don't have the confidence to walk into the room. The imposter syndrome comes run, you know, um, front and center. Now the question is, how on earth do you still walk in the room? What do you do? How do you know that actually, you know what? I don't have as much experience than everyone in the room. It's not even like I'm just like putting myself down. I actually don't have the experience that everyone else does in this room. So how on earth do I keep showing up if I don't have the confidence? That's what radical confidence is. And so what are those tools? Like I'm imagining walking into that boardroom, feeling insecure, you have a couple choices. You can act as if and put on a front and yeah. pretend that you're on their level, which 
is very transparent, yeah. or there's the opportunity to acknowledge to yourself, like, hey, I'm like, maybe not at this level yet. I still have to walk into this room. Like, how do I manage that? And you can come in and say, listen, this is who I am. I'm not like, I don't have your experience, but I'm here. That requires a level of self-esteem as well, to yeah. be able to say that, to admit that weakness. And part of your, you know, your kind of process here is about like acknowledging your own weaknesses rather than repressing them or pretending they don't exist. It's like, bring them to the surface, be in relationship with them so you understand what they are, which gives you an opportunity to then work on them and kind of get to the other side. Yeah, exactly. And to your point, there's no way I would have had the guts to tell people, I'm not at your level yet. Like, the, mm -hmm. you know, the in instinct is to just pretend, like go in, pretend that you know what you're doing. It's like, but that's just, too crippling sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I actually took this from my husband, have the identity of the learner. So now if you've got the identity of the learner, instead of being the identity of I know what I'm doing, mm -hmm. I've got this, I'm the head of shipping, you know, I'm Tom's wife, I'm the co-founder. That didn't help. Just because I was the co-founder of a company didn't mean that I actually knew what I was doing or was confident to walk into a boardroom. So if you adopt the identity of the learner, now when you walk into a boardroom, how do you think I feel? I'm like, oh, I'm going to learn in this room. Mm -hmm. When I go into a situation where someone's saying something that I don't know, I was like, oh, please explain because I don't understand that. But now as a learner, I thrive off learning. Now if I fall to my knees and I make a mistake or a catastrophic mistake, as the learner, I don't take that as a dent to my ego. I just say, oh my God, great. Now I can learn from this failure. Next up is Star of Screens, Big and Small, Terry Crews, who joined me on episode 676 for a long form exchange on overcoming toxic masculinity, transcending obstacles, confronting your past, and stepping into your truest power and most actualized self. I am an idealist. Um, and I think that comes with being an artist or just seeing the vision and just seeing a, a better way and going, oh, I want to go, I want that, you know. Um, and the thing is, is that for me, what was wild is that I always thought things were impossible or I thought it was magic, you know. But what I began to do is in order to be the person I wanted to be, I had to say, like, I have it already. Like, in order to be, to have the money and be, a, let's say, consider yourself a rich person, you have to look at the riches you have and say, I have this, you know, and to order to have, you must do. And then once you say, I have this, you do the things a rich person would do. And all of a sudden you are. But remember that in my mom's religion, the do part was gone. It was gone. And I realized that in the action, first of all, the visualization, and then the action, and then there it is, it comes. And it's almost like, like I say, you're in, you don't know you're in Los Angeles, but you are. You know, you so somebody just closed your eyes, blindfolded you, plopped you right there in it. You all of a sudden would have to know, like, you know, you, you would have markers and different things, all, all this stuff. But the realization is that you are there and you have to be there now. Mm -hmm. And then you behave like you're there now. Right. 
dude, it's a deep you thought. Own, yeah, yeah, yeah. You own that truth. It just hasn't happened yet. Like my friend Jesse Itzler has this mantra that he would repeat to himself when he was a young person, like, I'm a millionaire. They just haven't paid me yet. <laughs> but like, yes. you know, that idea applying to everything. Like, I, you know, you just intuit or you inhabit the idea of who that person is who has the thing that you want or is living the life that you want. And you then conduct yourself accordingly. Let me tell you, and a perfect example is the first time I tried to quit porn, you're like, this is the hardest thing ever. Like, I mean, mind you, I had three different jobs. I started working like crazy because I was like, what am I gonna do with my time? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And but I was, it was hard because I was like, this was what I used to do. And when I didn't do it anymore, the habit for doing something had you you don't you don't get rid of things, you just replace them. And I started to replace it with good things. And all of a sudden, I didn't have any desire for it anymore. It, but I can't mark the moment. I can't mark the time. Mm -hmm. It was 12 years. But then all of a sudden you go, I don't need that. That's not me anymore. I'm a whole nother person. And it's so incredible. It's almost like going back through those Franklin planners and realizing, wait, you saw yourself there. You're even past that. You know what I mean? It's yeah, awesome. but it's also the difference between white knuckling it. Like I'm going to apply yeah. my self-will to this problem and just like, I am not going to do this thing oh. versus like, I'm letting go. I'm transcending this because I am becoming this other person who wouldn't do that. Let me tell you, that is a great saying because I have to tell you this because willpower doesn't work. It doesn't work. Believe me, I, I tried the first time I was getting <laughs> out of it and you're like, you're like no, it, 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 it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But what I realize is that it's not a willpower issue. It's a lack of information issue. The more you start to realize and know, it changes you. Like when you know what it's doing, when you know what it's costing, you know, I did things like making logs of how much I spent on all that every day. And you think if you didn't write it down, you go, I spent 20 bucks. When I actually wrote it down, it was $300. Hmm. And you go, what in the world? But you, you can't rely on our intuition that way. You have to start to really write it down, see it and the whole thing. And the willpower does not work. It's gotta be the info, the info. What is it I don't know? And once you start going like that, you know what, you're trying to lose weight, you know what to eat. You know what causes you to do these things. You know, you know what exercises to do. You know what to be. And it's so... And it, all of a sudden it changes you. You wake up and you're just different because you know more and you're responsible for more. The more you know, the more you're responsible for. Mm. And so it makes it an, an amazing, I like to call it, it moves from a toilet into a tornado. Mm. The spin just starts to go up and up and up, up and up. <laughs> you know, the toilet is the other way, you know? Yeah. But the tornado, it gets better and better and better. Dr. Lisa Miller is a psychologist and pioneer in the scientific study of spirituality. On the podcast to promote her new book, The Awakened Brain, Dr. Miller delivered an incredible deep dive on the numerous benefits of cultivating a spiritual practice, the ways such a practice can enhance things like grit and optimism, and even insulate you from addiction and depression. Here is a slice of that fascinating conversation. 
when we tell a story, a memory, in a way that's very palpable and rich and has lots of sensory points, real anchors in it that bring us back in time, we elicit the same neural correlates as if we were there, plus memory. And Mark Potenza, working with Regina Sin, had become one of the leading experts around addiction. And he had found that the addiction loop in our brain, the insulin striatum, is the same whether we are addicted to alcohol and drugs or pornography and the internet or gambling, it's the same, I've got to have it, right? Mm -hmm. So they had worked together, Rajita and Mark in the past, developing this in-scanner task when it came to craving, when it came to telling stories of addiction, hungry, and I need to have the drug, I've got to get to Vegas, I've got to have this roll of the dice. Well, when I approached them, I said, you know, we know from epidemiology that there's nothing as protective against addiction as a strong personal spirituality. Can we watch that in the scanner? And of course, as open-minded creative scientists, Mark and Regina were thrilled. We sat down for a year and a half and we took the following question after a year and a half of inquiry to 18 through 25 year olds. We said, tell us a time when you felt a deep connection with your higher power. Some people say God, Jesus, Allah, Hashem. Some people say the universe or oneness with all life. But tell us a time where you felt a deep connection with a deeper, deeper presence of life that was loving and guiding. Nobody was confused. Mm -hmm. 18 through 25 year olds in New Haven. A lot of them were Yale students. A lot of them were agnostic. Some spiritual, but not religious. Some not friendly to the whole idea of religion. Nobody was surprised. Everyone had an important experience. Everyone. And, and how many people, what was the population size? Well, okay, so in order to, you know, in MRI studies, there's often very small samples and yeah. you can publish a study with like 10. But we had about 30 people who went through every phase of this study. Mm -hmm. right? And in this study, whether they were Christian, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, spiritual, but not religious, no matter what their background was, the same neural correlates ran as they told us that narrative. And what is a neurocorrelate? We wanted to be very precise. We literally knew at what point in their study they felt this unit of experience. So we had them tell their stories. This is part of Regina Sin's mm -hmm. method over 15 years. Tell the story, tell it again while it's audio taped, play it back in earbuds in the MRI machine while the fMRI is running so that we can pinpoint to the T what neural correlates are seen, what happens in the MRI as you say, this specific little passage in right. your story. And right at the point where the young adults would say, I'm walking down the street, I'm completely depressed. I've just been turned down at five out of six medical schools. I'm such a loser. I'm never gonna be a doctor like my mother. But then suddenly I see light in the leaves and I know that God has a plan for me. Or suddenly I see light in the leaves and I know that life is buoyant and I will be a healer in the way I am intended. Or suddenly I see light in the leaves and I know that there's a path for me greater than anything I know yet. That aha, the reshuffling of meaning is illuminated and speaks to a true part of myself. Right as that part of the narrative is told, mm -hmm. we saw coming up online, four major components of what we're calling the awakened brain. The first is that quieting, I'm such a loser, quieting the racket the default mode is powered down. Now that you can right. do through mindfulness, that's simply getting present. That's but, the network of rumination. Exactly. And, uh, right. Right, now very often because we have a hungry culture, many people are taught mindfulness to get present and it's helpful, but it only stops there. It only gets us present. 
when in fact, what then is potentiated is that we are at a threshold to cross for being present into a state of awakened awareness. It's mindfulness plus, it's crossing into. Mm-hmm. And the next three loops are first and foremost, just as we were held as children and our parents or grandparents' arms, we feel loved, we feel held, the bonding network is engaged and we are aware that life itself is holding. The next is the parietal. The front, that's the frontotemporal yes, network. Yes, yes, exactly, right. Yeah. So that was the article. And in fact, that, well, I'll tell the whole story. We uh-huh. Then the next piece to come online is the parietal. It puts in and out heart boundaries. So just as there's a sense of discrete and specific experiences, you have your path, you live in California, you have your family, you look like you, and I live in Connecticut and I have my family. We are distinct, we are magnificently diverse, we are different. And at the same time, there's a deep common unit of experience, a common human heart. The parietal puts in and out hard boundaries so that we can toggle between a sense of difference and common love, common felt being. And then the final piece, which is- But just to put a finer point on that, reduced activity in the parietal lobe allows the influx of this sense of commonality among all. Is that right? Is that fair? That we are connected or one. Exactly. And then finally, this is a particular importance to innovation, to decision-making. The Army's really championed this dimension of awakened awareness. We move from a narrow top-down dorsal attention network, tactical, strategical. We've got to get out the red door. We've planned, we're prepared, everybody's trained, we're going out the red door. Mm -hmm. But today here live, the red door's jammed. We can't get out. That's a metaphor, of course, for life. You know, everything was in the bag, A plus B plus C. Of course, it was me who was going to be promoted. And then they what? They brought in somebody? Or A plus B plus C. You know, I was the one. It was my turn to be quarterback. It was my turn to be on the varsity football team. And what? I got cut, you know? So it all didn't add up. The red door stuck. And because the red door stuck, we shift in a state of awakened awareness from the top down narrow bowling alley perception of the dorsal to the bottom up ventral attention network. We have a much broader field of perception, far more information. And many people say that the right answer, the new possibility pops, the yellow door. Never would have seen the yellow Mm -hmm. door. But the yellow door leads to a landscape that was surprising, that could be magnificently, in the big sense of the word, prosperous. I meet the person who I am best friends with the rest of my life. I find a line of work I never dreamed of. I end up in a city that was so very much at home. The yellow door opens. And that possibility of bottom-up perception leads to a form of creativity and innovation the Army calls situational awareness that allows us to align with the way life really is. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is gonna be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton, birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands, 
kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years. And I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily personally for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. All right, people, enter Brad Stolberg, writer, coach, and personal friend specializing in human performance and well-being. Brad made his third appearance on the podcast this year back in episode 677. 
delivering a powerful primer on the principles upon which to build sustainable success and a life grounded in meaning and fulfillment. What about the relationship between presence and groundedness, particularly in the context of like working with very driven people? Presence feels like an indulgence. It feels like an obstacle in the way of achieving whatever you need to get done on a particular day. So you have to sell the bill of goods as to why this is important. Time out. You said on a particular day, Mm -hmm. and that's the thing. Deep presence and really like honing that is never going to get you the most work done on a particular day, ever. But it might over the course of a year or a decade or a career. And that you just said like, the that, tortoise over there. Yes, hair. and that's how you settle that score right there. I'm super clear with my coaching clients. They come to me talking about efficiency and productivity and optimization. And I'm like, all these things are great. I want all these things too, but on what time scale? Because if I wanted to optimize over the next 24 hours or even over the next week, let's say, I would slam espresso and Red Bulls. I'd sleep four hours a night and I would just bury myself. And that'd be super optimal, but not for a month, certainly not for a year. So I think that there's the zooming out and saying, hey, like what time scale are we operating on? And there, the research is unequivocal. If you're talking about excellence or success over the long haul, being present for the work that actually matters is perhaps the most important variable that you can do Mm -hmm. to set yourself up for that success. Right. We don't intuitively think about these horizons in decade-long chunks. We think about the next quarterly earnings or you know, the next six months or perhaps the next year. But if you really want to build sustainability, which is what is at the core of what this is all about, like how do you want to operate to the best of your ability for the longest period of time? You have to broaden that window, right? And I've had to learn this. Like I'm, you know, I just want to grind and grind and grind. And I've been doing this podcast for almost 10 years became pretty clear like two years ago, like I'm not gonna make it. Like I have to figure out a different way of doing this so that I can maintain my joy for it and my presence when I'm sitting with guests and my enthusiasm for you know, consuming all of their wisdom and material and being able to deliver on the best conversational experience that I can. I can't sustain it the way I was doing it. So now I take a month off every year hired a team and like I've had to learn how to you know overcome this perfectionism and control impulses and those were not easy lessons for me and I'm not great at them every day either but it was a necessity I think in order to do that which gets into it, we're sort of moving out of presence and more into the next thing which is patience yeah and I think built into patience is this idea of looking at things you know on a longer time frame yeah real quick I jotted uh, a note down Did you, during that period, and we don't have to name guests, but did you ever find yourself resenting the fact that you had to come in and talk to someone? It never got that bad, but I was moving in that direction. And and I really never wanted to feel that way. And I realized that if I didn't change some things that I was quickly gonna be that person. And obviously that's at odds with the experience that I'm trying to cultivate and create. I ask that because that emotion is often in my coaching clients, a game changer for helping people realize that their work style is too frenetic and frantic and Mm -hmm. too quote unquote optimized on short timescales is people come to resent work that they once loved. And the only thing that's changed about the work is that when they started doing it, they were a team of one and they had a really low bar and they spent most of their day deep in the creative work. 
And now suddenly they're running meetings and they're leading teams and that deep focus present work has gone away and they start to resent their job. And the mm -hmm. number one thing to help those people are to, to help them reclaim those moments of presence. And I'll say one more thing on this before moving on to patients, because I think it's a, a very important coaching insight. And that is that unequivocally, you will fail if you just say, I want to be more present. And even if you try to work top down, you'll likely fail. So to say like, I need to be present all the time, it's never going to work. There's too many distractions. So with clients, I always have folks work bottom up. So that means just start with two hours a week. So schedule ahead of time, two one-hour blocks where you know what you're going to do during that period. So when it rolls around, you don't just pull up your email and just start there. And then after two weeks, try an hour and a half. And I had this one client who came to me because of feeling resentment and just like coming to hate a job that she loved. And at first I'm like, yeah, maybe it's the job actually. And she, she needs to move on. But it quickly became clear that she actually loved the work. She just didn't love how she was running around frantically. And she said, there's no way she could be present. She's high up. She runs this huge team. She's got kids, blah, 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 blah. And we just started with an hour a day. And slowly but surely, she proved to herself that the world wasn't going to end if for an hour a day, she put everything away and worked. And a year into our coaching relationship, this is a true story. And I try to practice what I preach. So I am very... Um, I have boundaries around when I coach. It's like certain days, certain times. And I went to try to work with her executive assistant to get a coaching slot. And the person's like, no, like, sorry, like Kate can't meet with you then. Her your afternoons are her all blocked window, off. Her window and your window. So she went meet. from impossible yeah. to be present at a company with over a thousand people to three and a half to four hours a day. But it started, if I would have told her that at the beginning, she would have fired me. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is true with ourselves. Even if you don't have a coach individually, if you tell yourself, oh, I'm going to be present for four hours and you fail, it's like a diet. It's like anything. You're off the wagon. It's hard to get back on. So I think starting really small. And again, it's, it's a common theme in this book. And I think this is the coach in me is that you take something that's really noble and aspirational, but for it to work, you've got to get super concrete and start at a level that is like in the weeds. We all want to positively change the world, but where do you even start with such an idea? How do you begin? Well, philanthropist and impact investor Jacqueline Novogratz has dedicated the better part of her life to answering this question. She's just an incredible woman who has made an extraordinary impact on improving the lives of millions of people across the developing world. She's very much a personal hero of mine. And in episode 657, please check this one out if you missed it, Jacqueline shares actionable, sustainable solutions to some of our world's biggest challenges. There are so many well-intentioned people in philanthropy, and yet, you know, there's just too many stories of, you know, funds just end, ending up, you know, there's all kinds of issues around corruption and just organizations being poorly run and the money seems to disappear and nobody ends up benefiting. And it's all like, it's just a big clusterfuck. Yeah. Like, how does that happen with people who I'm sure are trying to do the right thing and help? I often say that distance dulls the moral imagination. And so we, we want to do good. We want to be part of good. And so we give money hoping it does good, but that's not enough. We've actually got to build in systems that have, like, to your word, of accountability, generosity without accountability. 
can really make a mess of things. And it's not the same as justice. Justice is hard. Generosity can be hard, but it's a lot easier than justice. And so um, when there's no accountability in systems, and if you think about an aid system where people are coming and going, they're not vested, it becomes even easier for many of the different players to take different pieces of whatever is available. Mm -hmm. So it's gotten a lot better, but I did this study of 200 of these women's groups in Kenya in one of the two months that I was there. And what I saw was a pretty terrifying cycle where the philanthropist or the aid organization would give money to a women's group. They immediately would give a 10% kickback to the local district officer Mm -hmm. because the money had to go through him. Then they had no skills to cooperatively run their chicken farm or whatever they were given the money for, usually decided by some government official or foreigner. The whole thing would fail. But whenever the dignitaries would come to see how the project was doing, the women would parade out some little chicks. They'd put a show on. They would go buy Fantas and biscuits. Sometimes they would kill a goat. And after looking at these 200 groups, I could only conclude that the majority of them were spending money to keep this whole farce alive. Mm. And um, I remember staying up all night one night writing the report. And the the first line was, good intentions lead the path to hell. Another famous saying of yeah. my mother. And I just felt such rage that there was a machine that ultimately was a big lie that if we really cared about enabling people to solve problems, this is not the machine we would be building. Yeah. And on top of that, you know, as generous as the spirit is that's that's donating all of these things, it doesn't respect the dignity piece because nobody wants to be just a charity case, right? Like this is another kind of facet of the things that you talk about in the book, which is finding a way to inspire that dignity. And that comes with this model and this approach where these people aren't on the receiving end of charity, they become stakeholders and invested. So you're aligning the incentives, right? A lot of these problems you're talking about, there's a misalignment of incentives that butts up against a lack of accountability that creates like all of these problems. And acumen is really a reimagination of the model that is this hybrid between philanthropy and you know proper investment banking or venture capital to get those incentives um, in parallel with the best interest of solving the problem and getting people really engaged themselves, the people who are on the receiving end of it. Is that, I, I you feel like I just like, I don't know. Rich, I, just, I don't awesome. feel like I articulated that no, very you, well I, at it all. It was beautiful. <laughs> it, the, you, you articulated it beautifully because yeah, what I learned more than anything else and certainly after the Rwandan genocide, in story after story like this is that many well-intended people see a chance to give a grant and get people a little bit more income for their income generating project. But that income and wealth is not the opposite of poverty, that the opposite of poverty truly is dignity. It's that ability to make choice. And so when I started Acumen, the whole focus was on what systems would you build to enable human dignity rather than just make sure people get some income. 
And it felt very clear to me then, particularly after all of these experiences, that markets have a real role to play because there's a distribution and a scaling that, mm-hmm. that's natural. You have self-organizing mechanisms through the good part of capitalism and it's limited. It too often leaves out the poor and in the worst of cases, it exploits the poor. Charity has a role, but it too often creates dependency. So what if we took philanthropy and invested it in those entrepreneurs that were hell-bent on solving some of the biggest problems of our day, like sanitation, like education, like energy, like agriculture? What if we gave them time to really understand the true constraints and the obstacles that get in poor people's way and build solutions so that at the end of the day, they could send their children to schools they wanted to send their children to. They could get access to good healthcare. They could get electricity. Although I wasn't thinking about electricity 20 years ago. And um, because what I'd seen over and over was that the poor actually pay more in these broken markets than the middle class pay anyway. It's not like the poor are sitting around waiting for somebody to get them water, it just happens to be dirty. And the water they get access to is often supplied by what's called mafias, extortionary providers. And so it seemed to me that we could start with recognizing that every human being wants to solve their own problems. We wanna be part of contributing in one way or another and build those systems that at the end of the day, not only allow that kind of flourishing, but solve all of our problems. To help us better understand the mechanisms behind microbial health, the good Dr. Will Bolsowitz, a board-certified, award-winning gastroenterologist and the New York Times bestselling author of Fiber Fueled, came back for another gut health deep dive, breaking down the latest science on the microbiome and the powerful health benefits of being fiber-fueled. Here is Dr. B. You're often one to say that the idea of the microbiome gets conflated in this reductive definition of just being about gut health, but really what it is, it's about metabolic health, right? And to the extent that we can tend to our microbiome, it will improve our metabolic health, which of course the downstream implications are that we become better and more resistant at fighting off all of these chronic ailments that are a result of problems with our metabolic health. Metabolic health is associated with inflammation. Inflammation comes from the immune system. We describe these things in their own separate way, but they're not separate. This is all part of the confluence of factors that make us human beings and they're completely integrated. Yeah. Well, we're well into this podcast and uh, we have yet to define our terms here. So if somebody's stumbled into this episode and this is their introduction to the microbiome and their only kind of association is that the microbiome means like bacteria in our digestive system. Perhaps we should take a few minutes to kind of really define what we're talking about in terms of what is the microbiome and why is it important? Yeah. The microbiome is a community of these invisible microorganisms, and there's several different varieties that are there, but they're there. They're covering every external surface that's a part of us as humans. So like they're covering our skin. If we were to literally look at our thumb, there's as many microbes right there on our thumb as there are people in the UK. 
They're inside our mouth, inside our nose, inside a woman's vagina, but they are most concentrated inside our intestines, specifically our colon, which is the large intestine. In that spot, you will find that there are about 38 trillion microbes. And 38 trillion is a pretty ridiculous number. It's hard to know exactly how to like frame that. So let me put this into perspective. There's about 100 billion stars in the sky. So if we were to take all the stars in the sky, all the stars in our galaxy, and shrink them down to a ball, we would have to place 100 galaxies full of stars into your large intestine. And even that actually is only a fraction of our gut microbiome. <laughs> That's a good one. How'd you come up with that? I'm a math nerd. It's impossible to wrap your head around that big of a number. Yeah. It, it is impossible. It's completely ridiculous, but that's a part of who we are. Every single one of us has mm -hmm. a microbiome, right? When in this conversation that you and I are having, when we talk about the microbiome, typically this is what we're going to be referring to is the gut microbiome specifically. And these microbes, they're a part of human history going all the way back to the very beginning. There's never been a moment where a human being did not have a microbiome. Whoever that first human was, they had a microbiome. And from that point moving forward to today, three plus million years of human evolution, it was never exclusively human evolution. It was always co-evolution. We were rising and falling with these microbes. And that process galvanized the relationship that we have with these microbes, where we grew like very clearly, if you look at the science, we grew through evolution to really trust these microbes, because we gave them tasks that we completely need them to do the job for us to be healthy humans. Mm. So starting with digestion, like digestion is access to nutrients. If we don't get access to nutrients, we don't live. And we need them. We rely on them for the digestion of many of our foods. We talked about uh, our immune system, our metabolism. Let me also add our hormones and our mood our brain health, our cognition, the expression of our genetic code, they are powerful. And On they're that, not even human. Explain the one about the expression of the genetic code. Is that in reference to our ability to express certain genetic dispositions? Like if our microbiome is out of kilter, then we're not able to you know, basically function because our genes are underexpressed that are intended to perform a certain function? Or what do you mean by that? If you go back to the, the year, it was uh, roughly 2000, 2001, and they were wrapping up the Human Genome Project. And this is Francis Collins, who just recently retired, but at the time he was one of the most preeminent, well-respected scientists at the NIH. This was, Bill Clinton was the president. And he called a press conference along with Tony Blair. Mm -hmm. And in the Rose Garden, they have all these people there to announce that they had just cracked the genetic code. And the reason that this was such a big deal from their perspective is that they sincerely believed that once we crack the human genetic code, we're going to basically have the path to curing cancer or stopping heart disease. Right. And they really believed that that would be the truth. And the problem is here we are, and it's more than 20 years later. And clearly that is not the truth. Clearly it has not worked out the way that they thought that it was going to work out. And that's because we are not a, and I think this is actually empowering, we are not a set of predetermined health outcomes in a genetic code. Instead, our genetic code is more like a series of switches. And you can turn them on or you can turn them off. And whether or not you do that is going to determine what actually happens with our body. Mm -hmm. 
But the question is, who's sitting at the switchboard and flipping the switches? And the appearance is that these are the gut microbes. Right. They're in control of basically flipping the switch and determining whether or not we have health conditions or we don't. Next up is ultra phenom and force of positivity, Camille Heron, a woman with 21 marathon victories to her name, the 24 hour distance record, and a slew of other crazy world records as well. She's a woman who is narrowing the gender gap with astounding feats of endurance. And she shares her unique training style, her philosophy on life and sport, and the ways running can be self-transcendent in our episode and in this powerful clip. I feel like there's no limits on what I can right. do. Like if I set a goal for something, like I'm somebody that doesn't really limit myself on like, I just go after it. I just, you know, bite down and go after that goal. So it's yeah. It's just a question of like where you want to place your attention. And I think you yeah. even mentioned the, um, the 3100 yeah. uh, in Queens, yes. which is a wild one. That, I mean, that is just so, that blows my mind. <laughs> I, I mean, 3,100 miles, like around, like, I think it's like a half mile yeah. block. Um, I mean, how do you stay motivated? How do you find joy, you know, when it's boring? Um, and I, I think I'm somebody that like, I mean, I like to use the energy around me when I'm in races and um, you kind of have to, you have to break it down. Like, how do you eat an elephant? You eat an elephant one bite at a time. And so um, I've learned like when I run races, like I need to, you know, track the mileage and I need to break down the, how, how am I going to eat the elephant? Yeah. And so, I'm, I mean, that's something I think about in races, like, you know, whether I'm going hundred miles, 24 hours. 3,100 miles, like how do you break down eating the elephant, so? Well, you're no stranger to running around in circles. So <laughs> you're, just, you're running around in a circle. The interesting thing with that one is the course closes at night. So you go to bed and it becomes like a job for the summer. You just wake up <laughs> and between eight and five or whatever, eight and eight or whatever the hours are, you just go around that loop and try to get as many miles as you can. There's a yeah. documentary about it that my friend Sanjay Rawal oh, made. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah. And it's so interesting. The people that excel in that race are, are not the people, like they don't look like runners. They're like average people with you know all different kinds of jobs. Um, and it's and it really shows you like oh this is a, this is about mental fortitude this yeah. is about like something more than athletic capacity this is about like Spiritual. a connection to something beyond like those are the people that seem to you know excel yeah. Yeah, and I, I feel that. I feel a spiritual connection. When I go for world records, I feel like I'm tapping into something really special inside of me. And I reach a point where I like transcend and like, it's almost like my head starts to float off of my body. Mm. And I think when you do something like that, you really have to tap into that spiritual energy inside of you to keep going and to complete it. Cause it's just something that just, you know, it's just like beyond like right. what you think is possible. Tell me more about that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've always had this ability uh, to tap into this extra energy inside of me. Um, and I like, I remember when I set my 50 mile world best back in 2015, I think I had like, maybe it's like 12 miles to go. And I joked that it was like the hand of God came over me. And I literally felt like my head started to float on my body and I'm just like a machine those last 12 miles. And it was kind of one of those points
points where I was either going to get the record or not get the record. And I felt like I just found some sort of like spiritual connection where my body just became a machine. And it was kind of like my head was Mm. floating. And I felt that like many more times when I've gone for world records, I feel like even I think about when I did my 12 hour world record, I started to feel that I feel like I kind of just went into this like machine mode. And yeah, I mean, it was like, it's it's incredible. I just, I feel it. I feel this energy that I can tap into when I go for these amazing things. So like this advanced flow state where you yeah. become this channel for something else. Yeah, yeah. I feel, I feel it. Like it's incredible. I just, like even, even racing Harvey. I mean, it was like, I just transcended like this last couple of miles and I don't know how to describe it. Like I just, it's like, I almost like detach a bit from my body and from the pain I'm feeling. And I just become this machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's wild. Well, it yeah. is. That's why you have to do the 3100. It is this self-transcendent <laughs> yes. run, run. That's what it's called, right? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's going to be like my finale as a runner. <laughs> mm. Um, How do you think about yourself as a role model? Obviously, you're inspiring to everybody, but particularly to women, women athletes, young girls. I'm sure you have opportunities to speak with younger people. Like, how do you think about how you carry yourself and what that means for the next generation of young athletes? Yeah, well, when I'm out there and I'm going, I'm about to do something, I mean, I think about not only the people that inspire me to do a race, I I feel like every race that I do, I have somebody that is inspiring me and that I think about, like, especially later in the race. But I also know that people are watching me and that I'm bringing inspiration to other people. And I feel that, I feel that during the race. I feel like, you know, I'm doing this for the world. I'm doing this to, you know, elevate the sport, to raise the bar on what women think is possible. And uh, it's such a powerful mm. thing when you're out there. I feel like I'm. it's not just me trying to reach a personal goal. I'm doing this for the sport. I'm creating yeah. history. And it just like totally like elevates me like later in the race, just thinking about that. And now being 40, you're not just breaking barriers in distance and time you're breaking barriers in age. Like you haven't even begun to, you know, tap into what you're capable of. I'm sure you've got a whole slew of world records, you know, coming, but it's really cool because it creates this conversation around what we're capable of and what our limits are as we age. And as you redefine it, you're in equal parts inspiring young people as you are to like the older people who are trying to, you know, rethink what they're capable of as we get older. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think about when I reached my mid thirties, I thought I was on some sort of like downhill slope or something. And I mean, probably a lot of like marathoners and, um, you know, ultra athletes think that. They think that, oh, you know, it's all downhill from here. But I feel like I'm reaching my prime right now. And I mean, it's incredible because here I've been a runner for 27 years and I'm still getting better, you know, at age 40. And, uh, you know, I feel like I'm kind of dialing in more, like I talked about my diet and my recovery. I'm kind of dialing in more on those factors that, you know, maybe I just kind of let them slide in the past and wasn't really as dialed in on them. So I'm kind of showing like, you know, if I'm using like more of my brain and having more wisdom and with my training and my recovery, my diet, all these things. And it's it's like working. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you reconcile two seemingly opposite passions? Well, elite ultramarathoner and full-time high school teacher, Harvey Lewis helped answer this question. And he gave us a powerful lesson on mindset, on consistency, 
and how to push beyond the limits of what you perceive possible. Here's a clip from episode 658. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Uh, during the race, I actually, you know, I went through a low part uh, around like mile, I think about 140 or 170 rather. Uh-huh. And uh, it's incredible because, uh, I mean, I, was, ha- I had like the, the uh, battle inside my mind, like the side that was not wanting to submit at all, but I had like a little bit creeping in that I thought of like, well, it would be nice to like, you know, just go relax in a hotel and mm-hmm. you know, put my feet up and like, how long is this thing gonna go for? So and you're only halfway in. Only, and I, I mean, didn't you know, know that, that, that you're, time. You don't know. That's the no thing. Idea. You don't know how long right. it's going to go. I had no idea at that time. And so to get through that dark place, I like share with my crew chief. And I mean, having a strong crew chief is really important in this mm-hmm. race. And I just like when I got back to the tent, I made sure no one else was nearby. I just said real quietly to Judd, I said, "Hey, I'm I'm struggling through this a bit right now." And uh, he came up with a good idea. He's like, just visualize that you're running back and forth to work. Cause I, I run commutes to work. Yeah. And so like, that was incredible because at that point I was really able to just go beyond it and then just focus on each loop and just imagine I was running back and forth to work. Mm-hmm. It was so easy at that point. Which is kind uh, of about the same distance, right? Three it's or four about, miles. Yeah, it's about the same distance. So it's incredible how just changing your mindset in like, can make such an impact. And I really didn't go through any other, I mean, I went through, it was tough in the, in the fourth day, but I didn't go through a point that was like as mentally, like where I was in a dark place like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So you're at mile 300 of bigs. Like I got to hear about this like hallucinatory Nirvana moment that you had. Yeah. So the, the this year I would just say like, uh, it, it was kind of crazy because you know, you go through these lows and highs, but going into 300, it just felt like we were invincible almost. Like in uh, Mori Mori, the Japanese runner, mm-hmm. he, he just was fired up. We were both fired up. So once we got past 300, we started doing crazy things. And like uh, some of it was like strategic on my part, trying to like wear him down a little bit. Um, but some of it was just like, and passion, like just feeling like fired up and like, let's just go. Uh-huh. Uh, so we started doing things that you probably shouldn't do after 300 miles. Like we started running up the hill, like that we've been walking up since day right. one. And then we started sprinting through the camp. Like again, everyone fired up, like just kind of ridiculous things. And sometimes we just like start running super fast through the woods in places we probably shouldn't where you'd like crash. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, it was, and we just, sometimes we'd be hollering. Like we just start yelling. Like not, not in like aggressive way towards each other, but just because we were fired up. Yeah. And like excited about it. Like, so it was, it was wild uh, to hit that, that mark and then feel all kinds of new energy. Like, I mean, I felt in sometimes more energy than I felt the whole race at like loop two. Right, like you I just go into energy. some crazy gear yeah, that you didn't even know that you had. Not even know that you had. Like that was what was so special about it because you you get beyond 300 miles and then you realize, wow, there's these like, like you have more force than you ever had even in the first day. You're like, where did this come from? Yeah, like where does it come from? I mean, what do yeah. you make of that? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so much in the head. Like is it, with your training, which will catapult you to that level, like that depends on your mind as well. So, I mean, so much is the mindset to get out there when it's 
cold and rainy and 11 p.m. You know, like what, what's driving you? So then it gets us back to the question of why. And that's the other major thing. And like, to be honest with you, whenever I'm doing an A race that I really care about, I actually write down my why statement. And I write down a bunch of stuff under why. So not for just things, one. what was the why? I had about 15 things. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, some are sort of personal. Um, some definitely would be like uh, for other people, like, uh, you know, for my students or my parents. Mm-hmm. I would like to impact other people and their lifestyle and like their health and like what they're doing. So like that motivates me a lot to do my very best to hopefully, you know, impact someone else. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But 
This quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Okay, back to the show. Former corporate lawyer turned New York Times bestselling author of Quiet and Bittersweet, Susan Cain joined me back on episode 699 to get philosophical on introversion, on bittersweetness, on grief, creativity, connection, spirituality, and so much more. Enjoy this slice of that exchange. There are babies who are born into this world. And from the day they're born, you can test their nervous systems and see that they're more reactive to all different kinds of stimulation. Like they'll salivate more if you give them sugar water and put it in their mouths. So the babies who salivate more when they're two years old and you put them into a playgroup of kids they've never met before, those are the babies who are going to tense up and take longer to integrate into the group because they basically have a nervous system that is just reacting more mm -hmm. to new inputs. And it makes you want to like slow things down and pause and check right. it all out before you're ready. Is that like, when I think about that, the word that comes to mind is sensitivity, right? Which is applicable to bittersweetness too. Like I took your quiz, yeah. I scored a 7.3. <laughs> so I guess I'm prone to some level of bittersweetness, but I've always thought of myself as maybe just a little bit more sensitive than certain other people. And sensitivity could be a word that you could apply to introversion as well. Like they're just more sensitized to their environment or I mean, how do you, like, is that a completely different way of thinking about this or how does that No, it's more up? like these are all really overlapping categories. They don't lay totally on top of each other, but they overlap. So with bittersweetness, which by the way, I define as a kind of a state of mind where you're very attuned to the way in which joy and sorrow in this world are forever paired. You know, you mm -hmm. don't get one without the other in this life. And the way in which everyone and everything we love will not be here forever. But that's somehow what comes with that knowledge. There comes a kind of deep joy at the beauty of the world. So it's mm. like a real blend of all these deep instincts. This idea of bittersweetness, I think most people think of it as an experience, but you talk about it as like a state of being. So distinguish those two things and how you arrived at that point of view. Yeah, so I mean, it is an experience in the sense of, you know, like the moment where you're walking your child down the aisle or something. That is a quintessential bittersweet experience. But there's also a view of the world and a way of being in the world that's quite bittersweet. You could call it melancholic, except that word in our culture is sort associated with clinical depression. Yeah. And that's not really what it means, or it's not the way I'm using it. So the bittersweet state of being is much more about like this sense of that awareness of joy and sorrow and of fragility. Um, Aristotle 2000 years ago asked the question of why is it that so many of our great poets, philosophers and politicians all have a melancholic temperament? Like, wh what is that? So it's something about being attuned to the gap between the world 
as it is and the world as we would wish it to be. Mm, mm. You know, there's like the emotional DNA of humans. We come into this world with a sense that there is a more perfect and beautiful world that's out there somewhere to which we belong, but we somehow find ourselves here instead. Right, and so it's the yearning and the longing, like the idea that things could be better. It's not a despairing per se, but it's a, it's a sense that like we're in a certain place, it could be better. And the melancholic impulse is built out of like how to get from one to the other. Yeah, and it's the heart of our creative impulse. You know, it's like a feeling of like, how do you get closer to that perfect and beautiful world for which mm-hmm. you are yearning? If you look at the musicians, the great poets, the writers, all of the you know painters, the ones that seem to resonate the most are the ones who have the facility to, uh, the capacity to kind of take these seemingly conflicting emotional states or the polarities of them mm-hmm. and weave them in some way that makes sense to us as humans, but perhaps transcends our ability to like articulate. And I think when you hear it, you know it, when you see it, you know it, you're not sure why, like why is it that the minor key or these certain songs and the way that they're constructed cultivate that in ourselves. I don't know if there's neurochemistry on that or any science on that, but it really is like, I know what that is. I don't know why I know what that is. It makes me feel this certain way that is, you know, perhaps, you know, seemingly off my optimal state. And yet there's a comfort, like you talk about rainy days and things like that, like you kind of want to languish in it. Yeah, there's a comfort and there's a there's a transcendence in it. Mm-hmm. With Leonard Cohen, the very first artistic act that he took was when he was nine years old and his father died. And he he took one of his father's bow ties and he wrote a poem and he buried the bow tie and the poem in the backyard garden of their family house. And that was his first artistic act. And it was like, he was kind of repeating that act again and again throughout his career. There's a kind of like taking something painful and then turning it into something else. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like the real, in terms of how to live, that's the real insight this tradition gives us because it's kind of saying to us, these moments are gonna come, these pains are gonna come, you have two choices of what to do with them. You know, you can suppress it in some way and inevitably you're going to take it out on yourself in the form of depression or addiction or whatever it is, or you're going to take it out on someone else, Mm -hmm. abuse, passive aggression, or you can take those pains and sit with them somehow and then make meaning out of them and transform them. And that's something that we do so naturally. Next up is my friend, the brilliant Simon Hill. Simon is a nutrition science expert. He's also an author, an entrepreneur, a restaurateur, and fellow podcaster over at The Proof, which if this clip speaks to you, is a podcast I'm certain you will love. Simon is a fountain of practical knowledge that can benefit those contemplating a plant-based diet, as well as the more seasoned plant-based advocates. Here is Simon Hill. A common fear that a lot of people have when considering a plant-based diet is calcium. Oh my goodness, if I don't eat dairy, I'm not drinking milk, my bones are gonna turn brittle, where am I gonna get my calcium? My understanding is that dark leafy greens are a pretty good source of calcium. I've never had an issue with this, but how do you think about that and ensuring that people are meeting their calcium needs? Firstly, I would say that building strong bones 
is a team game. We've reduced it very much to just calcium, but it's so much more than that. And even before talking about nutrition, I think it's worth emphasizing that exercise is arguably far, far more important. Both impact exercise, mm -hmm. so we're talking about jogging or skipping, uh, you know, going up and downstairs or hopping, that sort of impact exercise is a stimulus. You know, structure reflects function. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it responds to that by laying down more uh, bone, increasing your, your bone mineral density. And then the second type of exercise, resistance training. So be it uh, lower body, things like uh, squats or upper body with bands. The research is pretty, pretty clear that we need to be doing this stuff regularly for as long as possible to prevent a significant amount of bone loss, which does naturally occur as you age, mm -hmm. but you wanna slow that down. Yeah. Um, before we completely shut it down, like any final thoughts or parting words for people? I, th I, I think, uh, you know, in the first, in our first conversation, we kind of established the, the science underpinning a plant predominant to exclusive diet being best for human health. And my entire thesis is, uh, and I want to kind of make this clear because I'm not sure I really spoke to that, is that when you broaden the lens, open up the aperture and consider how our food choices affect the planet and you consider what we're doing to billions and billions of animals and the unnecessary pain and suffering that they are enduring, experiencing, and that none of us would likely swap places with them. When you do that, it does create a compelling case for adopting a diet that is as plant exclusive as possible. And I say as plant exclusive as possible rather than a sort of firm endpoint because we all have our own circumstances, means, social circumstances, and I'm aware that this will look different for each individual. So my message is about, you know, I have unconditional love for everyone, no matter where they end up. And it's not about perfection. This is about adopting this imperfectly, just like my diet is not perfect, it's imperfect. And rather than having a few people around the world make improvements, perfectly, if we want to see great changes in public health, if we want to see great changes in planetary health, if we want to minimize the unnecessary pain and suffering that we're inflicting, then we need billions of people doing this imperfectly. So with that in mind, my message is to let go of the perfection and take some pressure off yourself, remove the self-judgment and just get started. Mm. And that may be a small change, you know, such as just changing one component of your meal, swapping red meat for lentils. But by getting started, hopefully today or tomorrow, you start the momentum. And, you know, I have full confidence in everyone that as they get started and start to make these changes, they will begin to feel better themselves and that is hugely motivating, as is what you feel from a mental point of view. And, you know, I have made this transition 
and I was aware of the health benefits that were up for grabs. But what I was not aware of was how good it feels to live more congruently and to align your actions with your values and beliefs and the peace that that brings. So start slowly, take some pressure off, and I wish you all the best of luck. Next up is someone I think it's fair to say is a person near and dear to me. She is my confidant. She is my in-house spiritual guru. She is my partner in life and all things. Her name is Julie Pyatt, AKA Srimati. And in this excerpt from episode 710, she shares actionable ways to live with integrity, to amplify your awareness and elevate your consciousness as we emerge from the pandemic and the multitude of experiences that that period wrought. I think as we emerge out of this period, a lot of people have been engaged in a deep self-reflection about how they've spent their time and how they want to spend their time going forward, right? It was this you know, moment of forced repose where because everyone was home all of a sudden and we were kind of compelled to look in the mirror in a way that we generally don't because we're busy. I think a lot of people took stock of like, why have I been you know, in this job or doing this thing? And I've seen a lot of people make huge changes in their lives. But now as the world has started to open back up, it's like, oh, recession, inflation, political division. Like there's a lot of, noise out there that is fear inducing and there's good reason for that and you know chances are we are going into some kind of economic challenges at the moment that i think you know promotes a restriction of whatever sense of expansion might be percolating up in people so maybe it would be good to talk a little bit about how to navigate that and if you are feeling that sense of expansion or change or an impulse to more deeply explore what might be authentic to you and how to nurture that and bring it to life and be more fully expressed and more authentic in how you're pursuing your life. Like what are some strategies or practices or tools that you could impart Mm -hmm. to that person? Yeah, beautiful. Well, I mean, the heart will never fail you. And that's been my experience. So it doesn't mean that you're going to have the trajectory that you think that you're going to have in your mind or in you know whatever you whatever you thought your life was going to be. But I would say that this podcast is living proof and our journey the heart will not leave you. It will not well, this fail. This is you. a manifestation of a heart-centered impulse. Like I didn't whiteboard like oh I'm going to have this podcast and it's going to be this thing. There's nothing about this that was predictable in any way, shape or form. It was the result of letting go more than self-will. Like mm-hmm. it was like, well, what are the possibilities? Like, and trying different things and not holding on to anything too tightly and really just following my curiosity and what inspired me and more deeply connecting with my intuition and my sense of who I wanted to be in the world in a very non-defined kind of ephemeral way, but learning to tune into that and to listen to that and pay attention to that and take action on 
you know, those impulses is what created this. It's not because I sat down and had a goal and said, this is what I'm doing. It was the antithesis of all of that. Yes, it was all of and that. You, and you're the one who's always reminding, <laughs> reminding me of that when I start to get, you know, too up in my head about stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, it was an entire uh, spiritual ritual that actually activated this entire timeline. And it was based on no sensibility whatsoever, except my unwavering extreme faith that our heart would not let us down. And I knew that I had to support you to live and experience your heart's deepest desires. And so we were making decisions that made no intellectual sense whatsoever. So again, the key is inside the heart and it's in each one of us. Because if we can activate what that natural expression is, that is so beautiful, so divine, so profound, and it might not be seen by anyone. It's not about being famous or having like a big reach. It's about doing what is authentic and reminding ourselves that art, creating art and music and dance with sacred intention is the greatest gift we can give humanity. And instead we've been reversed to think that you can only be an artist if you're in a certain circle or if your art sells for a certain amount of money or if you're you know, one of the greats. That's not true because art is a language and a communication and poetry and music that is invisible to anti-life forces. It actually gets through, it makes a connection. So the biggest thing we have to do is live in resonance with our heart. And it comes back to that question, how do you wanna evolve? And what are you hiding? What are we still hiding from ourselves? And if we can refine that through many different ways, I will always go back to yoga. Oh, bless the yogis of our civilization of many, many eons of time. I mean, the yoga practices literally are shelter from the storm. They are breathing practices. Many people are doing them in a modern way and they have breathing workshops. Those are all yogi techniques. So yoga practice, yoga breathing, you know, this is what cultivates the presence, the awareness of the one that is breathing us. Mm -hmm. And in the end, we only have our consciousness. You have your consciousness. No one can ever take that from you. And we aren't in control of a lot of the other things that happen. So it's like my prayer is for the people in Pakistan in these extreme floods, that when they transition, that the suffering is short so short that their creator, that their loved ones, that their guides are there to catch them and that they've transitioned. You know, I don't want anyone to suffer. You know, it's not even reconcilable, like how we would choose these human lives to come in here to face so much of what we face. And, you know, we're in a very privileged life, of course, but, you know, life will visit you wherever you are. If you have money, it will come in the form of disease. <laughs> you know, it'll come in the form of divorce. It will come to remind you who you are. Coach, author, and world-renowned expert on all things high performance, Steve Magnus dropped by the studio for his third, but first solo appearance on the show, sharing a new approach to unlocking true toughness and physical and mental resilience. And 
how to best lead others to optimal performance. Anytime our brain is kind of caught off guard, we tend to have a threat response because your brain wants you to survive, right? Mm -hmm. Anytime we're like prepared and it's kind of within our reach, we have a challenge response, which is more kind of testosterone adrenaline driven instead of cortisol threat driven. Mm -hmm. So when we think of like toughness, we often think of like, oh, just fake it, like put on a mask and you'll be good. But once that's exposed, like your brain's gonna jump to that freak out moment where it's like, oh crap, sound the alarm, get out of here, escape, flight, don't take things on because like we're not capable. Right, so an example would be in an Ironman when somebody's leading on the bike and they get a flat, right? And then they, they're all pissed off and they're throwing their bike and throwing a tantrum and they look tough because they're doing that, but actually that's weakness because they haven't prepared for that variable. And when it occurred, the stress reaction was to just like lose your mind or, you know, in a tennis match and you're throwing chairs because of a bad call or something like that. Yeah, and that's how most of these things happen is like from the external side, it might look tough or it might look like you care, right? And like, oh, look how pissed off he is. Mm -hmm. Like he cares about his performance. But to me, like it's the opposite is like, well, you're just kind of sabotaging yourself. You're not prepared for the moment. You're not figuring your way through this stuff. And I think you can almost summarize the biology or the neuroscience of toughness down to like, we talked earlier about, can you keep your mind steady no matter what kind of chaos is going on around you? Mm -hmm. Can you keep your mind from defaulting towards that freak out reactive state? Or can you keep yourself online, rational, ability to work through things? And in the heat of the moment, the competitiveness, like often what happens is we default to that freak out because it's like, almost overwhelming. It's this like emotional charge behind it. Mm -hmm. And embracing reality is, you know, that's a piece here. There's so many other things yeah. that you have to practice in order to maintain your level of composure under that kind of stress. But a lot of it in my mind has to do with this distinction that you alluded to, which is the difference between kind of bravado, false bravado versus real confidence, which is earned and experience-based. Confidence needs evidence. You know, mm -hmm. that's how you feed it. In my generation, I think we really screwed this up because we had this huge self-esteem movement. Yeah. And I remember elementary school, junior high, it's like, you know, you just get told you're great. But what the science actually shows is this, is that we don't get that testosterone bump of like confidence unless we've done something to earn it. What a shocking thing to say. How dare you? <laughs> You're gonna get canceled for that statement, Steve. You know that, right? <laughs> probably, probably. But but I, I think this is like, it's so central to things because we get told the wrong idea so much and instead we need to do the work. And it's not that you have a certainty about it, but it's to know that, hey, I've prepared. I've put in the work. I've been consistent. My brain knows that I'm at least maybe not gonna fall apart if I enter the arena. Right. You know, I always like to put it as, does the thing have the power or are you in control? And so much of toughness is, do I have some semblance of control over things? Not complete control, but some semblance where I can influence it. 
So if the thing has all the control, if I can't step away from the run, say, hey, you know what? I'm a little sick and I've got a race coming up, so it's probably better that I rest. If I can't do that without that anxiety coming up, right? That should signal it's an issue that I need to be able to work with to sit with that discomfort so that the thing doesn't have the control and instead I'm making the wise decision and taking the action. Yeah, and the coach or the mentor or the leader has to understand how to instill that in the people that they're working with, right? So that's the difference between the controlling Bobby Knights out there who strip their athletes of any agency or control versus the empowering coach who understands how to kind of um, seed that intrinsic motivation and that true confidence where the athlete or the mentee is empowered to make their own decisions and feels like they have input into the trajectory of their career. The easiest way to make an athlete worse is to take away autonomy. What does a celebrity mentalist have to teach us about high-performance mindset? Well, the answer is more than you would imagine. Meet world-class mentalist and highly accomplished ultra runner, Oz Perlman, who joined me back on episode 673, sharing strategies for cultivating greater confidence, endurance, and resilience. Well, why don't you, you know, kick it off by just explaining what mentalism is so we're all clear on kind of the playing field in, in which you operate. I think it gets sort of conflated with magic and mind reading and tarot card reading and all kinds of other stuff. So lay the groundwork on what it is that you do. I would never believed if you would have told me I was gonna be a mentalist. This is not like the career path mm -hmm. I thought I was gonna be on, which is shocking to this day. It's kind of like magic of the mind. So everybody can visualize a magician because you think somebody picks a card and they're gonna find it with fast hands, right? That's kind of the dynamic, sleight of hand. Mm -hmm. So what I do is more analyzing how people think, reverse engineering their decision-making, and some elements of body language reading, psychology, and honestly, group dynamics, social dynamics, knowing how people behave and studying that for decades, and then knowing how to entertain people. That's the key word. It's entertainment. I'm not psychic. I don't pretend to know the future. I don't. I would have won the lottery by now, Rich, mm -hmm. between me and you. But it's reading people and making it very entertaining and doing it in such a way that it's not explainable. Like the, the key is it's kind of, you watch magic and you know somebody did something fast. My hands don't move fast. I just do stuff where I'm very good at guessing things. You're very much an expert at this though. I watched a whole ton of your videos. I watched all the America's Got Talent performances and Ellen and the Today Show and all this sort of stuff. Man. And you have an incredible like stage presence and command of what you're doing. And it's impossible for me as a layperson to try to deconstruct what the cues are that you're, this sort of foundation that you're laying and you're so in this flow of what you're doing, but I have to imagine that you're paying such close attention to, you know, what's coming out of the person's mouth, how you're kind of cueing them up, how you're leading them down a certain path. And if there's something not going your way, you have to kind of redirect it and, you know, land that plane in the place where you want to stick that landing, right? So it seems like you're kind of reverse engineering all of this. Like, you know where you want it to end up and you have to take this person on a journey that's gonna land them there without anybody being the wiser. Very well put, like exactly that. This is the best way to describe it. Think of a movie with the director's cut that you never saw, right? The director points the camera at what they want you to see, but there's other elements of the movie. 
So what I do, it's very funny because it's not linear, uh, not to be like too in the weeds. I don't usually just say, hey, think of this and I'm going to guess this. I kind of take you on a path where amazing things happen and you don't really know exactly what's going to take place. And that's the advantage for me. That's why I'm not working for the FBI profiling people or like at a casino. There's certain things I do that give me a tactical advantage in life, if you will. Mm -hmm. But it's also done on the course of entertainment where I can't just go into a casino and rack up winnings. I can do certain things, but they know how to neutralize my advantage. But in essence, yeah, I know how to observe people. I generally know how you're going to behave. And even in the moment where you think, I'm going to change my mind, I'm going to do something different right now, I know you're going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get into how you know that. And I know you're going to be cagey about what you're willing to reveal, but I'm going to work on trying to get you to divulge a little bit. Right. Uh, so what is the the overlap like between what you do professionally and how your running kind of informs that? Like, does it you know, how does it enhance your creativity? What is the practice around that? What are the kind of mindset tools that you develop that are applicable in both of these disciplines? I've tried to figure out, and it's it's not like, it's hard to articulate some of it because everybody knows that if they find something that's a practice, like you just called it, whether it's yoga, whether it's, you know, meditation, whether it's running, is your brain gets into a zone that I think we don't have enough of nowadays, which is you tune out, which you don't, you're not thinking of all the parts of your life that you have to do and you're not on your phone or electronics or things that suck you in. And that's when my biggest creative bursts happen. They happen when I have to do something, like you just said, necessity is the mother of invention, constraints, you have to have those. And also when I'm running, like that's when I zone out. I just, there's something about moving and it's different for all different people. It's funny because I don't think of running as something I would enjoy. When I see someone running, it doesn't look fun to me. Mm-hmm. And when I was a runner as in high school and I hated it so much, I still am that person. But something about it now just evens me out. It, it kind of, the way my mind goes into that zone, it's made me a better mentalist because I go into that same thing where I can hyper-focus in a way. And it's kind of like visualizing a race. Before I'm ever at a race, I've already run that race a hundred times mm-hmm. in my head. I've already thought through where it's going. And that same kind of, methodical, deciphering all the little angles of it and trying to also, while also just letting yourself go, it's a little bit of both. Like mentalism, what I do, it's an art and a science. And running, I think, is the same way. Yeah, I mean, I the way I think about it is you're basically flexing this muscle of being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Like you're acclimating yourself to a certain kind of discipline that just inures you to this idea that you always have to be like iterating and creating and pushing forward because the running, you know, is always like holding you to account, right? So if you carry that level of discipline into your professional life, like these two things can feed each other. But I do think there's something you kind of just briefly mentioned about not getting ahead of yourself. Like in ultra running, like you have to be present with that pain and suffering. If you have such a long distance to go and you're having a hard time and you start thinking about that, like you're toast, right? Oh, you're toast. You have to be rooted in the moment. And I would imagine not being a mentalist, but thinking like for you to do what you do on stage, like you have to be so in it, in the moment of what you're doing in order to be able to execute. Yeah. I never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. Like if I lose track of it, it's kind of like the same thing as if you don't, if you're thinking about what you're going to do after you catch the ball, you don't catch the ball. And that's a lot of my mess ups have been that I'm thinking too far ahead and I really have to focus on what's happening at that moment. Mm-hmm. And running is, I don't know, it's a great escape. It's just, uh, it's so fun to not know what's going to happen. And with the ultras, the big challenge of it is just knowing that you're going to suffer and seeing how you're going to do in the suffering. Yeah. And the longer it is, the more of a mental thing it is. Yeah. It's all mental. Right? And the mental is what you do. 
Right. The mental is all I do. Yeah. yeah. Right. They go hand in hand. Good Lord, what an incredible year. I hope you enjoyed this look in the rear view. Links to all the full episodes and the social media accounts for all the guests excerpted today can be found in the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. Part two with a bunch more awesome excerpted convos will be up later in the week. Stay tuned. Until then, be well, enjoy the holidays. In gratitude, peace, plants.